Hi, I'm Sam Ballatin Crimes. And I'm Alice Ballett. This episode of Welcome is the second in a two-part episode where I take us to Kibra, Nairobi, and we meet the Nubian community. If you haven't already, head on over to our feed and listen to the first part. We left Mzay Yusuf telling us how overcrowded Kibra has become compared to colonial times, when the Nubian community enjoyed a higher standard of living and military privileges. I also spoke with some other Waze, or old men, some a decade or so older than Mzay Yusuf. And just as a recap, Mzay is Swahili for old man. It's a signal of respect. Some of these men remember a bit more of the colonial period. My names are Soleil Abdel Qadir. I am born and bred in Lindi. I'm 82 years of age. Lindi is one of the neighbourhoods of Kibra. I am Ahmed Adam. I was born in Langata, Kibra. I'm 74 years of age. The Nubians are not only in Kibra, they are scattered in different places. For example, El Damarvin, they are in, uh, in uh, Meru, uh, Kisi, Kisumu. And the reason why the Nubians are scattered is simply because during the establishment of uh, administrative uh, areas, the British used to go with the Wazes, and the Wazes used to provide them with security. So after they finished the establishment of the administrative offices, the Wazes used to remain there. Nubians are spread across the country because most of the security they provided was guarding the railway line as it was being built. Upcountry, as they say in Kenya, these small Nubian settlements remain along that railway. The British trusted the Nubian soldiers because they were loyal, and so they started to get other jobs as well. Uh, they really respected our great-grandfathers. They trusted them. They worked with them. In fact, most of the government jobs used to be given to the Nubians. The Nubians used to be employed by the British uh, in the ministries. So they were doing all government work. Though Nubians can be found across the country, it's Kibra that is the heart of the Nubian community in Kenya. Kibra, the forest that was originally part of Maasai territory, around which Nairobi grew. I am talking with Mze Adam and Mze Swale at a place in Kibra the Nubians call Shilanga, but others call simply Nairobi Dam. Shilanga is the name of the Nubian village that used to be around the dam. It's a hot morning in December, and we squeeze into my friend's car to drive the kilometre or so from Makina to Shilanga. It takes about 10 minutes. The road is paved, but really potholed. And we have to stop to say hello to everyone the Waze know, which is basically everyone. When we get to Shilanga, we pull off into the property of a rundown primary school, get out of the car and walk a few hundred metres down a hill behind the school building. There aren't many open spaces like this in Kibra, only in a few schools. There are kids playing soccer and a big field of green, which makes the heat steamy. It's almost pleasant until you work out what you're looking at. Mahapa, Tulipo, Nimali, Nikoi, Naito, Shilanga. 
Here where we are staying right now is called Shilanga. And Shilanga used to be a dam full of water. It used to be a recreational area for the Nubians during the colonial period and in the decade or two after, before Kibra became too congested. Twalib, who we heard from at the start of the first part of this episode, is with us. He played here when he was a kid. Uh, this place reminds me of my youthful memories because we used to come here to learn fishing. In fact, it has made me to become a fisherman. I remember, especially during the weekends, uh, people used to come here to relax, to have a nice time, and uh, to, to, to enjoy. Uh, this place uh, has actually taught many, many young people how to swim, and it has also uh, brought a lot of people here just to, to enjoy and relax. When the Nubians remember the colonial period in this idyllic way, especially compared to what Kibra is like now, it starts to make a bit more sense why independence heralded a more difficult life for the community. Mzee Swale, like Mzee Yusuf, remembers independence. Carnival. Carnival is uh, a ground that uh, the Kenyan flag was raised uh, at the time of independence. Uh, I, was, I remember I was around during that time. We were there. We spent the whole, almost the whole night there, uh, up to midnight. Uh, there was a lot of rain at that time. And there was water flowing in Shilanga. I remember the uh, Duke of Edinburgh came. He brought the constitution. He gave it to Mzejomo Kenyatta. And there was a lot of celebration. And uh, now this uh, carnival is called Uhuru Garden. And it's a place where the Kenyan flag was raised during independence. So it was a very, a very nice uh, place. A new Kenya was born that day, but it was born of a struggle the Nubian community was conflicted about. While Mzee Yusuf was clear about his allegiance to the Africans, other Nubians, though loyal to Kenya, have more reservations about what independence has brought. I am not happy for Uhuru, that is uh, freedom, that is when Kenya got independence, simply because the independence has uh, undermined the Nubian community, it has actually led to the destruction of the community. Uh, The community is not able to get jobs, Uh, we do not have, they took away our land, we don't have land. So I am not happy about uh, independence. During the British, we lived very well. They respected us. We enjoyed a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, opportunities. After independence, as rural urban migration increased and Africans were, for the first time, allowed to live freely in the capital, Kibra began its transition. Many Nubian families were forced out of their homesteads by administrators who were handing the land over to people who would pay them something small or owe them a favour. 
So unfortunately, uh, in 1979, after the death of uh, the first president, Jomo Kenyatta, uh, during uh, the second president's time, that is Moi, in 1979, uh, we were evicted, forcefully evicted from Langata. Our houses were brought down, and we stayed or lived outside for one year. In fact, uh, I have a photo uh, here that shows the house of a lady whose house is being demolished. Uh, another uh, person who is, being, who is sick being removed from uh, his house. We also lived very different, differently because we used to rear chicken, cattle, and uh, we had uh, many domestic uh, uh, animals. So it was very, very different. But unfortunately, we were evicted and we had to be accommodated by our brothers and sisters in the other areas. Nairobi Dam, known to the Nubians as Shilanga, is one of the most striking examples of what has happened to Kibra. Remember Mze Swale, Mze Adam and Twalib talking about fishing and swimming in the dam? It has been filled with rubbish to the point you can walk on it. All that green I said was almost pleasant? It's hyacinth, a sign of severe pollution that is so bad it's turned the water into land. It has a pitch. You can see children playing soccer. Outside another mosque, alongside the Kenya-Uganda railway line that runs through Kibra, I talked with Mze Ali. He was dressed, as he normally is, in a kanzu, the long, usually white gowns worn by Muslim men, and a woolen vest. Darajani, where we meet, is kind of like an intersection. A little bridge crosses over the railway line on a road that has been paved only in the past few years. One of the bigger Nubian youth groups have their office there and run a water tank and toilet block. It's a bit of a hub, noisy as tuk-tuks and boaters, motorbikes, zip past, and people shout to each other. Everyone knows each other here. Some young guys offer us some plastic chairs to take with us to a relatively quiet corner behind a little kiosk so Mze Ali can sit down while we talk. He's a respected elder, so they don't charge us for the rental. My name is uh, Ali Yusuf. I was born in 1934. And uh, this place that this place that we are in right now uh, is Kibra, is part of Kibra. Uh, it is called Kambi Te. And this is part of the place that uh, the British gave to the Nubians. Mzee Ali has seen it all. Like the others, he remembers the golden age of living in colonial Kibra, and he remembers his father's generation soldiering for the British. He also remembers being abandoned. The Nubians uh, worked for the British for a very, very long time, but unfortunately, the British never compensated the Nubians. The railway line, when it was being built, it was the Nubian Askaris who were giving security to the Asians. Askari means soldier, and by Asians, Mze Ali means the slave labourers the British brought from India, one of their other colonies, to build the railway. But unfortunately, Instead of uh, the service that they provided 
to be compensated and probably be given a better place they they ended up giving the Asians a better place and neglecting the Nubians it is very unfortunate that uh, instead of Nubians being given uh, land tenure they were given uh, plates uh, by plates, uh, it means they were given numbers for the huts that were around here. In some homes that still stand from that era, maybe like less than a handful, you can see these numbered plates. There's even a map from around 1934 that shows which family had which house and where. But that was not much more than a trick. It didn't make anything secure for the Sudanese soldiers or their families. So where does this all leave the Nubians? First and foremost, it has left them fighting for their land, specifically for 4,197.9 acres, which is what was gazetted as Kibra in 1918. It's the old military base and the farm and homestead plots Nubian Askaris had been granted instead of a military pension. But the property was never formalised by the British before they left. Mzeh Yusuf explains... At first, uh, the presumption was that uh, the settlement in Kibra was a reward for the work they had done. Maybe not quite adequate in comparison to other compensation given to, to soldiers of other races. They want the land not because it's valuable, though it is. In fact, they want a communal title, which means it couldn't be bought or sold. What they want is to feel their place in Kenya is safe. Having land that others recognise as your territory is the only way to get that. Twilib explains. As all community believe that their ancestral land, uh, you can identify by certain uh, uh, things, uh, maybe their burial sites, their uh, cultural sites. So for the Nubians, if you want to know, Nubians are born, uh, are born in, uh, were born in Kibra. Those who are in Kibra, they, they have been uh, buried in Kibra. They have their burial uh, cemetery in Kibra. They have their uh, cultural sites. The Kenya Nubian Council of Elders and a few other community groups, the Kibra Land Committee and the Nubian Rights Forum, have lobbied politicians for decades and decades, but with little luck. They're not a community with a lot of leverage. They're small. They didn't have the resources for a legal battle until some not-for-profit organisations stepped in to help. Even then, the law is pretty grey on this matter. But after some shifts in the political landscape, in 2017, they got it. Or at least some of it. Aisha and Hassan, who we heard from in the first part of this episode, proudly recount that day. So after a lot of struggle and uh, going back and forth to the government to claim the land, um, recently His, Excell- His Excellency President Uhuru Kenyatta gave us the 288 acres. It makes the Nubian community feel appreciated and recognised in the country because if you're not, if someone believes you're not a Kenyan, then they cannot give you what, because you for you to have that particular piece of land means once you have been recognised as, as a citizen in Kenya. So us having the 288 is a big plus for us. So what does all this mean for how we should reckon with what the British left behind? Mzee Yusuf. The Nubians felt uh, shocked by the British. 
and Mzee Ali. The only thing that uh, I can say is that uh, unless they are reminded of the plight of the Nubians, uh, there is no responsibility. And in fact, uh, what has happened is that right now most of the of the old British men who are here in Kenya or who brought the Nubians here, most of them have passed on. If there's somebody who can remind them about uh, the, the plight of the Nubians having served uh, the British, it could be the only option. Beyond this sense of being shortchanged, there is no single answer. Some feel their military service has not been appreciated and want a display of gratitude preferably a material one, despite often ambivalent feelings about colonisation. Our fathers, our grandfathers, never got compensated at all. Sometimes I listen to the BBC and hear that there are African soldiers from Ghana, Nigeria and other places who are actually being compensated up to this day for uh, war pension and uh, you know such recognition. A small token that would indicate that uh, there was an appreciation. Because uh, if the World War, the First World War and the Second World War were important in order to to guard against uh, Nazism and uh, other extreme forms of government that would uh, make things even worse, then we did make a contribution to that effort. And I think we should be recognised uh, for that and appropriate compensation to be given. Many feel abandoned to poverty, like Umze Swale and Umze Ahmed. The British have gone, and they have left us in uh, poverty. At the time of the British, we were well off. We had uh, pieces of land around. We were doing some small businesses here and there. But unfortunately now we are very poor. We don't have anything. We were the subjects of the British and uh, they have gone. So they have just left us like that. The British should remember us. We are the children of the soldiers whom they brought here. Uh, We are facing a lot of challenges. The place they gave us has been grabbed. We have got nothing. So they must remember that the children of the soldiers who served them are still around here and they are facing many challenges. If it is not possible for them to solve the challenges, then I think it is better for them to return us where they, they, they brought us from. If it is not possible, the British should remember us. Twalib too. For those people who are listening to this uh, conversation, uh, I'm trying to appeal that, that the British all the Nubians, something that they should take responsibility of the Nubians, uh, of the Askaris' descendants. At the moment, we have the seventh generation of the Askaris in Kibra. And uh, what they did to the Nubian, leaving the, the, the Askaris without a proper plan. So British had a responsibility uh, 
to 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 make sure that Nubians at that time were given uh, security of tenure similar to the way they did with the Asians, who were also brought by the British to build the railway. For many, the feeling of abandonment is exacerbated by having had to struggle not just to survive, but even for the most basic sense of belonging. I think what the British government owes the Nubians first of all is a duty of care. Simply dumping us in a country or dumping our grandfathers in a country that was foreign to them without legitimate rights, without legitimizing the right to stay since they were the government at that time. Until recognition and restitution come, which could be a while, to say the least, Yusuf and the other members of Kibra and Kenya's Nubian community carry on making the best of their lives in Kenya, as all Kenyans do. It's a good thing that we have the title now. I wish things could be rushed up a little bit and could make the place much more habitable than it is now. And then then realise our dreams of actually having a homeland that is uh, worthy of the name. A homeland worthy of the name, Kibra. It means forest in Kanubi. And we are hopeful that when that is done, proper planning for housing and settlement is made, we will be able to rehabilitate uh, the rivulets and the streams that flowed through Kibra. We'll be able to make the, green, the area green again. Welcome podcast is based in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Nam is more commonly known as Melbourne, Australia. This episode was produced by me, Dr. Sam Ballaton Crimes, with production assistance and interpreting by Raja Bilale Osman. It was recorded in Nairobi, Kenya. Script supervision and editing by James Milson. The music composed by John Bartley. And special thanks to Mze Yusuf Diab, Mze Ali Yusuf, Mze Ahmed Adam. Mzee Swale Abdul Qadir, Mzee Twalib Mohammed, and the Kenyan Nubian Council of Elders, to Aisha Saeed Ibrahim, Hassan Mahmoud, and the Nubian University Students' Organization, to the Nubian Youth Council, and to Samuel Juguna, Sahara Abdi, Callum Sanderson, Tim Gilbert, and the Imams at Makina Mosque. If you like this show and haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It helps spread the word about the show, and we really appreciate it.